Today's passage is from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 28 through 31. I'm sorry, through 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, good morning. Good to see you here on this 4th of July, a great celebration of the freedoms we have to gather like this in this country. What a gift it is. Well, today we continue our study. All summer we're studying parables of Jesus, stories of the Master. And today we're continuing our study of the parable of the prodigal son, or as I prefer to call it, the parable of the two lost sons. Because it's really about two sons, and they are both lost. The younger son, as we looked at last week, is lost and alienated from his father due to his fleshly, selfish, self-centered, wasteful living. But the elder son is also lost. He's alienated from his father due to his own self-dependence, his own pride, his own control of his own life and his own salvation. Let's set the context again down in, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Luke 15, first couple of verses where it says this, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, to Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now let's remember who these are, these grumbling scribes and Pharisees. Let's not be too hard on them. They were people who really, truly wanted to please God. They truly wanted to live for Him. And they believed that pleasing God was dependent on their conformity to the law, to doing what is right, following the rules. And they're grumbling because they can't stand the fact that Jesus, who is a teacher, who is claiming to speak for God, and yet here He is hanging out with tax gatherers, collaborators with the Romans, and Sinners. Now that word sinner is a technical term for those who were not committed to following all the Jewish rules and regulations and so they were considered sinners by the Pharisees. They were not rule keepers. And so the Pharisees are looking at them and saying, we're doing what's right, they're not, and I, how can this rabbi who claims to speak for God, Jesus, spend time with them and not only spend time with them but eat with them? have intimate relationship with them. How can he do that? 
So in that context of these grumbling Pharisees, Jesus tells this parable. First he tells the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then this parable of the two lost sons. And as we saw last week, the younger son decides he is going to live for experience, for self-discovery. So he essentially wishes his father dead. He says, I want my inheritance now. I want you, I want to treat you as if you're dead, Father. I want nothing to do with you. I want my inheritance now so I can go live it up. Because I believe life comes from experiencing life, from self-discovery, from letting my life go. So he does. He takes the money. He goes. He lives a life of wastefulness, we're told. And he ends up desperately starving, feeding pigs, living in a Gentile nation. Somebody who the Pharisees would see as a complete reject. He comes home because he's starving. But amazingly enough, his father, rather than rejecting him, welcomes him back. In fact, he runs to meeting him and welcomes him. And the son has a speech and he thinks, if I can just give my speech, maybe I can convince dad to take me back, at least as a hired servant. But before he can even finish the speech, his father runs and embraces him and kisses him and clothes him with his own robe and his ring and sandals and throws a party for him, saying, you're home, my son was lost and he's back and he is now restored as a son. Amazing, amazing grace. That song we just sang, Amazing Grace, that wonderful hymn, was written by a younger son, John Newton, who was a slave trader who did terrible things, but God saved him. So he wrote that hymn as a testimony to the fact that he was a younger son who had been saved by grace. Grace that's undeserved, unearned, it's absolutely free. But now in the last half of the parable, what we're looking at today, Jesus turns to the elder son, who represents in many ways the Pharisees who are listening, the rule keepers. But he also represents what I would call the typical Christian which means the elder son represents probably most of us sitting here in this room today. People who feel like the real way to get God's blessing is through moral conformity. I need to do the right thing. But as Daryl Johnson says, mentioned this last week, this parable makes it very clear that there are two kinds of sinners. There are rule breakers like the younger son. And there are rule keepers like the older son. Both are trying to find life their own way instead of coming to depend on God fully for His grace and forgiveness. And unfortunately, one of the great tragedies I think that happens in the church is some of you have come to Christ as a younger son who realized, I'm a sinner, my life's a mess, I need Christ, and you experienced grace, and it was wonderful. You came into the church, and it was awesome. And then you saw this emphasis on obedience, doing the right thing, and you began to turn into an elder son. Some of us are just elder sons naturally. <laughs> as a result, the church is full of 
elder sons who are trying hard to earn God's favor and blessing. And believe me, folks, as we'll see in this parable, it does not work. (laughs) So let me pray as we begin to dig into this text. My prayer is that God would open all of our eyes to what it means to really know him as a son or daughter. Lord, thank you for this parable Thank you for the power of it. May it penetrate our hearts and reveal you in a new light and reveal us in a new light so we might be set free and really know you as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump into the parable and seek to understand, first of all, the elder son, what he's like. But let me make a mention first about the structure, how Jesus put this whole parable together. The structure of the first half we looked at last week parallels the second half. It's very interesting. We tend to think of the elder son and the younger son as very different. You know, one runs off and parties and the other stays home and obeys. And yet the way he structured the parable, Jesus is making a very clear point. And that is... Deep down, they're both really the same. They're both needing God's grace. The way they're structured, think about it. Both sons are outside the house. One runs away to a distant country. The elder brother stays home, but he's out in the field. They both have a speech. They come back and they make a speech to their father. After the father goes out to them to try to bring them back and in the end the father reaches out to each of them with grace you see there's a great parallel between the two isn't there so what he's trying to say is that they are very very similar it's a way of Jesus saying to both the Pharisees and to us elder sons you think you're so different from that sinful younger son you're not so different You're just as in need of grace as he is. So let's look at this together. Let's dig in. Let's just look at some qualities, some characteristics of this elder son as we look through this parable. It begins, now his older son, this half, verse 25, the older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. Think about this son. He's been working out in the field all day. He comes back to the house and he hears a party going on. Now imagine, that doesn't feel very good probably. You think, wow, what am I missing out on? And in those, that part of the world, they had big courtyards. And then the house behind. So you'd walk into the courtyard and then to the house. And so probably what was happening here is there was a party going on in the house. And in the courtyard were all the little kids playing. Because that's literally what it says here. It says he called, summoned one of the children, not servants, one of the children over. So these, serv- these kids are playing out in the, in the yard. And he calls one over so he can have a private conversation. And the way it's described, he grills this kid. <laughs> What's going on in there? Tell me what happened. What's, you, it, because it's emphasized in the original language that he is interrogating him. What in the world is going on? 
You see, we see right off the bat this sense of suspiciousness about the elder son. Elder sons live with a lot of suspicion. A lot of feeling like I'm missing out. (laughs) Somehow the father's been holding out on me. The bottom line, I think, for an elder son is there's a mistrust of the father's love. We elder sons, and including myself here, we work real hard to do what's right. And then when we don't get blessed like we feel like we should in payment, we feel like God's holding out on us. God, I did my part. Why don't you do your part? And so we live with this sense of suspicion that somehow we're missing out. We've worked hard. We've tried to please the Father, but it never seems like enough. So there's this underlying suspicion. Secondly, there's a resentment, an underlying resentment. So the the boy says to him, Hey, your brother's come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back healthy, safe, and sound. And your dad threw a party. But here's the brother's response. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. There's this underlying anger, this resentment for an elder son when things don't go our way. Uh, A sense of anger towards God, perhaps. And it doesn't feel fair. Life feels really unfair to an elder son because we work hard. We're trying to do our part. We're putting a lot of energy into it. And then it seems like often other people get blessed that aren't working as hard as we are. That's unfair. God, you're not doing your part. So elder brothers get angry and resentful. And it says he was unwilling to go into the house. Now, culturally, we need to understand that that was a huge insult to his father. It's clear in the Scriptures that the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that in the Jewish world, in the Middle Eastern world, that you needed to always honor your father and mother. You needed to do that. And sons, eldest sons especially, were required to do that. I want to read from Kenneth Bailey, commentator, where he writes about that after his time of living in the Middle East. He says, If the son wants to fight with his father over the way his brother was received, he should first enter the house and fulfill his role as joint host. He is expected publicly to embrace and congratulate his brother and to accept the compliments that will be showered on him from the guests who assume his joy at having his brother back. He is expected to show special honor to his brother as the honored guest. When all are gone, then he can complain that the boy shouldn't be trusted and should not have been, we- have been welcomed in this public fashion. But instead, the older son chooses to humiliate his father publicly by quarreling while the guests are present. Middle Eastern customs and the Oriental high regard for the authority of the father make the elder son's actions extremely insulting. So that cultural context helps us understand what the son is doing here. He is so angry. He feels like it's so unfair. 
That son did everything wrong and he gets the fattened calf and I did everything right and I get nothing. Elder sons, those of us who work hard to try to get God's favor, despise grace. Elder sons despise grace. Because for us, you see, blessing comes by effort, by earning it. And when grace is extended totally free and completely undeserved, it feels so unfair. And so elder sons are often angry and resentful because they got something for nothing. And I worked hard and I didn't get what I should have. Third, a quality of an elder son is that they have a slave mentality a slave relationship with their father. So it says in verse 28 at the end, his father came out and began pleading with him. He's pleading with the son to come in. But he answered and said to his father, look. Now that in itself was hugely insulting. You always address your father with, with honor, with a title of some kind, father, something. But notice what he says. For so many years, I've been serving you. I've been slaving for you. And I have never neglected a commandment of yours. Now, what does that tell you about his relationship with his father? How does he view his relationship with his father? As a beloved son? Not at all. As a slave, as a servant. As one who is commanded to do things and needs to do those things. And many of us have that kind of relationship with our Heavenly Father. We tend to look at our faith as one in which our job is to keep the rules. To work hard to do what's right. And His job is to reward us for our efforts. That's a slave or servant mentality. That's a relationship that, to be honest, God does not want and will not honor. This son does not see himself as a son, but rather as a slave. But this is hard, isn't it? Because we come into the Christian faith and we see that God wants obedience. He wants us to grow in righteousness. He wants us to do what's right. But the error we make is we then begin to focus on our behavior and our performance. And we work hard to do the right thing. Should we obey? Yes. But not as the primary foundation of our relationship with God. Our primary foundation for our relationship with God is as His son or daughter. As saved, redeemed people who celebrate who He is. And live with joy in his presence. But elder sons don't do that. They focus on obedience. And so it all comes down to, am I doing the right thing? This slave mentality. And I'll just openly confess to you, I lived a good portion of my Christian life as a slave mentality. Focusing on doing the right thing focusing on that's what I need to do to be acceptable to God, which means you get consumed with 
trying to be a good Christian. And if you fail, you're overwhelmed by pressure and guilt. And if you do the right thing, as we'll see, you become self-righteous. And that's the next quality we see in this son. Listen to what he said. I'll read it again. I have never neglected a commandment of yours. (laughs) What an outrageous statement. Come on. Really? You've never failed to do what your father has asked? Well, maybe so. I don't know. He claims to have never disobeyed. But think of the Apostle Paul over in Philippians when he was living as a Pharisee before he discovered God's grace. He lived as an elder brother. And listen to what he says in Philippians 3, verse 6, as he describes his life. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law... I was blameless. At least he thought he was. According to the pharisaical laws, he was doing his best. He felt like, I was blameless, and that's what the elder son says. I'm blameless. Sometimes we do that too, huh? We claim to be, wow, I'm doing great. I'm keeping the law. I feel good about myself. And we have this self-righteousness. Or what happens too often, I think, is We fail, we blow it, and then we're overwhelmed with guilt and shame. So elder brothers either experience a lot of self-righteousness or a lot of guilt and shame where you're overwhelmed by your failure and you try to beat yourself up and, and call yourself names and try to motivate yourself to get back and do the right thing again. So you're on this roller coaster and elder brothers are just like that. When you try to live by moral conformity, you're you're just up and down. You're either self-righteous or you're overwhelmed by guilt and failure. But notice, either way, your focus is on your behavior and your performance. And that, that defines the bulk of the Christian life for you or me as elder brothers. That becomes the normal Christian life. Why is it? Because as Tim Keller said, we're living by moral conformity. That begins to define who we are. Well, it goes on. We see more about the elder brother. Verse 29, as he says, So many years I've been serving you, never neglected a command, and yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he doesn't even claim him as a relative, as a brother or anything else, your son, so he's really blaming the father, when he has, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. A quality of someone who's living as an elder son is comparison. You can't help but compare yourself to other people because you're living by performance and so you've got to evaluate everybody else's performance too. <laughs> and we tend to build up ourselves as elder brothers by putting others down, by comparing ourselves to them and trying to feel better about ourselves that way. You see, the elder son is very angry as he looks at his brother because it feels so unfair. He's done nothing but wastefulness and corruption and sin, and he gets the fattened calf. And I've worked hard all my life to do the right thing, and I haven't even gotten a goat. 
Man, life is unfair. The father is unfair. So actually what he does is he has to make the younger son, the younger brother, look worse than he is. Notice he says, he's wasted all your money with prostitutes. Now we don't know that. That's not part of the story earlier. But he has to embellish it a little bit to make his younger brother look worse than he even is. So that he, by comparison, can feel better about himself. Not that any of us would ever do that, right? (laughs) Don't we do that all the time? Elder brothers do. We compare because we're so insecure about who we are in our relationship with God that we constantly have to try to build ourselves up by comparing ourselves to others and put them down. So because of that, we can't handle criticism a lot of times. So we get defensive and angry if we get criticism or we look at other people and we take delight in their failures. And we look, wow, look, that person, you know, they smoke. They're, they're, they have an addiction. I'm glad I don't have an addiction. Or look at that terrible thing they did. They had an affair. Boy, they're awful. I would never do something like that. And we, we live in this comparison. Or we see somebody who's really good and then we feel really bad about ourselves. But we live in this comparison world when you're an elder brother and everything comes down to trying to earn God's blessing. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? Finally, what we see about the elder brother is just like the younger brother, he ultimately wants stuff more than he wants God. Do you see that? He, he doesn't want a good relationship with his father. He's angry at his father. He's putting his father down. And what is he really ticked about? What he's really angry about is that his brother got stuff, this big party and the robe and the ring and everything else, and I didn't even get a goat. So you see the motivation of his heart. He's just like his brother. He wants the same thing. He just wants stuff. He wants the blessing of God without ultimately deep down wanting God. And that's where we see the younger brother and the older brother deep down are just the same. They are trying to get the same thing just in two different ways. The younger brother by living by desire experience, rebellion. The older brother by, if I do the right thing, maybe I'll get what I really want. Again, it's not a very pretty picture, is it? So how does the older brother turn from living as a slave with his father to really experiencing sonship? from being trapped in performance to really living as a true son in his father's household. Well, let's notice first the father's response in verse 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son. Now, after all these insults, after all these things that the son has done to him, dishonoring him, insulting him, making him look bad publicly, what should the father have done? In that culture, his father should have beat him. 
or at the very least ordered him into the house, you act as the host. You do what you're supposed to. But listen to what the father does. He calls him son, which he doesn't use the normal word for son. He, it's a word for my child, my special intimate child. It's a term of real endearment. My child, he says, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You, you've really got access to everything already. Why, why are you so angry? But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. His father appeals to him, please enter the party. (laughs) Celebrate. Join the party. I just want to read to give you more background information. Again, Kenneth Bailey, what he says about the son and his response here. The father is expected to be furious. Rather, there is an outpouring of love. If he orders the son to enter the house and fulfill his duty as a member of the family, the son will certainly obey. But what would be gained? He already has a servant in the person of this young man. But what he wants is a son. So the father bypasses the omission of a title, the bitterness, the arrogance, the insult, the distortion of fact, and the unjust accusations. There's no judgment, no criticism, no rejection, but only an outpouring of love. Amazing. This is a shocking response in that culture. And if we think about it, it's pretty shocking for us too. Isn't it? Because remember Jesus' audience here. It's the Pharisees. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, I know your motives. I know your heart. I know your rebellion against your heavenly Father. I know all that. Your self-dependence, your pride, your arrogance, your comparing, your rage, your anger, all of that, I know it. And I'm offering you grace. Just like the younger son got. I'm offering you grace. That's amazing. That God offers the same grace to an elder son, an arrogant elder son, a Pharisee, that he offers the younger son. So how does an elder son really change then? Well, let me give you three steps, I think, for us as elder sons to really change. Number one, if you're an elder son and you want to really join the celebration, to learn to experience the joy of being a son or daughter of the living God and to live in that joy, first of all, you have to recognize you are lost. You have to recognize you are lost. You are just as lost as the younger son. In your pride and your arrogance, you are just as lost. You are alienated from God by your pride and self-dependence and self-sufficiency, just as lost as your younger brothers. You need to see that you're a sinner and not just capable, as capable of sin as the younger brother. Yeah, I could 
Given the right circumstances, I could do anything. We need to know that. Yes, we need to believe that. But even more than that, we have to believe that our pride and our arrogance is sin itself. And it alienates us from God. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, says this, What's the problem with the older son? Pride in his good deeds rather than remorse over his bad deeds was keeping the older son out of the feast of salvation. The elder brother's problem is his self-righteousness, the way he uses his moral record to put God and others in his debt so he can control them and get them to do what he wants. His spiritual problem is the radical insecurity that comes from basing his self-image on achievements and performance. So he must endlessly prop up his sense of righteousness by putting others down and finding faults. You see, that's a picture of the elder son that he needs, we all need to recognize about ourselves. Because in some sense, we're all younger sons and in some sense, we're all elder sons. It took me about 10 years of being in the ministry, working hard to be a good pastor, working hard to be a good Christian, to be pleasing to God before I began to see how much I was an elder son. And when it really hit home is when I began to see that me working so hard to be good and to be nice was sin. Let me say that again. Working hard to be good And to be nice is sin. Because for me, it was my way of trying to get on God's good side, to control my life and to earn His blessing. And when I began to see that that effort, that control was sin, and I began to repent of that, and I began to understand really much more fully than I ever had what grace is all about. I think we all need to go through that. We need to recognize we are lost, even elder sons. Secondly, if you want to be set free from that kind of lifestyle, you just need to come in. The elder son was out. He just needed to come in and receive grace as a gift. Undeserved. I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven, and grace is completely undeserved. It's a gift because I need it just as much as everybody else does. To come in and trust in His grace, to let go of pride and start living as a son or a daughter of the living God. That's the second step. And then, third step to being set free, join the party. (laughs) Celebrate. Begin to live as a child of the living God. Learn to celebrate God's goodness towards you and others. In other words, to live a life of gratitude and celebration. Do you realize that's what God wants for you as a Christian? Not a life of pressure and drudgery and I've got to obey or else. But a life of gratitude and celebration because my sin's been forgiven, been taken care of. And so what ought to characterize Christians more than anything is worship, celebration, delight partying (laughs) that's what he wants a celebration of the fact we are sons and daughters of the living God not based on anything we've done 
but based simply and completely on His grace. Tim Keller again writes, Elder brothers may be disciplined in observing regular times of prayer, but their prayers are almost wholly taken up with the recitation of needs and petitions, not spontaneous joyful praise. In fact, many elder brothers, for all their religiosity, don't have much of a private prayer life at all unless things are not going well in their lives. Then they may devote themselves to a great deal of it until things get better again. This reveals that their main goal in prayer is to control their environment rather than to delve into an intimate relationship with a God who loves them. So one of the greatest signs that you have moved from living as an elder son to living as a true son of the living God is your prayer life. In your own private times with God, do you get lost in praise and wonder? I mean really from the heart. Do you delight in Him and His forgiveness of you? Are you full of gratitude in your prayer life, in your relationship with God, so that you can get lost in that? And that, more than anything else, characterizes your prayer life? If so, then you're a true son or daughter of the living God. If you have a really hard time doing that, maybe you're still living as an elder son. If prayer is still a duty rather than a relationship of gratitude. Maybe that reveals something about our hearts. To wrap up, I want to read Ken Bailey again. He says this, Jesus is discussing two basic types of men. One is lawless without the law, and the other lawless within the law. Both rebel. Both break the Father's heart. Both end up in a far country, one physically, the other spiritually. But the same unexpected love is demonstrated in humiliation to each. For both, this love is crucial if servants are to become sons. One of the things that's interesting as you look at this parable is the first half the younger son, it ends with, and they began to celebrate. But Jesus has carefully crafted this parable. It's amazing. It's just beautiful. Where the second half, the father goes out and appeals to the older son, but we never get to see what, how it ends. We never see how he responds. Jesus leaves it open as if to say to the Pharisees who were listening, and as if to say to you and to me, how will you respond? Will you continue to live as an elder son, trying to control your life, trying to earn your way, living by pressure and guilt? Or will you come and join the party, recognize you're lost, experience grace, and begin to live a life of celebration, with the living God. The parable ends with a question. What will you do? Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing parable this is. Your wisdom is so far beyond anything we can understand. 
You understand the very depths of our hearts and how we try to live life on our terms, try to be our own savior, try to control life. But Lord, we confess that it doesn't work. Thank you that you offer grace to every one of us, whether we're younger sons or older sons. And Lord, may each heart here this morning begin to be set free to know you as true sons and daughters that we might join the party and live a life of celebration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.